This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger speaks with General Ben Hodges, retired commander of the United States Army in Europe and currently the Pershing Chair in Strategic Studies at the Center for European Policy Analysis. Roger and General Hodges discuss the ongoing war in Ukraine, European security in the face of Russian aggression, and the role of the United States in global affairs and security. General Hodges, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for the privilege. Well, you're a senior advisor for Human Rights First, a nonprofit, nonpartisan international human rights organization. And prior to joining Human Rights First, you were the Pershing Chair in Strategic Studies at the Center for European Policy Analysis. I got to know you and uh, really appreciated what you did in the U.S. Army. In your last post where you led United States Army Europe from November 2014 until January 2018. And rightfully so, you're someone that is the authority really on what is going on day to day with Russia's war on Ukraine and getting your view in terms of what the United States should be doing to support Ukraine's efforts uh, on on the battlefield. Let's start with 2014, General Hodges. You, of course, were the leading general officer uh, in Europe, and that was the year, of course, was the last time Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine in this in that setting in 2014 of course he annexed Crimea tell us a little bit about that and how, what impact that had on your outlook for security in Europe well um Roger thank you I I have to say I'm professionally embarrassed that I overestimated Russian capabilities um, I had been focused on their modernization efforts the amount of stuff they were buying and and there was no doubt as we saw in uh, Crimea in, in 2014 the uh, electronic warfare capabilities they had, those kinds of things. And and a reminder also the lethality of the modern battlefield. This clearly was not going to be Afghanistan um, or even, you know, Iraq in the later years. But um, I, I overestimated what they could do. Um, I had failed to appreciate the depth of corruption in the ministries and how that affects their readiness. Um, and also that they, you know, you know, doing joint things, given all your experience, you know, to be joint is not a natural act. I mean, it took the U.S. Congress to force us, the U.S. military, to become joint. Uh, Russia has no culture of jointness. They have not integrated yet their, their land or, or maritime forces, thankfully. Uh, and they haven't yet figured out, uh, even after nine years, a coherent command and control structure. Nonetheless, they still felt confident back in 2014 that they could roll into Crimea, which they did. And, and the West, the collective West, did basically nothing um, other than to, uh, we started helping with training of, uh, of Ukrainian forces. Talk about the overestimation. Of course, that's, I imagine, in, in large part due to Russia's failure to achieve objectives in Ukraine in 2022 and now in 2023. But thinking about their annexation of Crimea, and I've I've read what you've been writing over the years and listened to you when you would comment in the press and like, still felt that the combination of the capability they had, and this is my assessment of your view, uh, and Vladimir Putin's ambition, uh, that Russia remained a formidable threat from 2014 going forward. Um, tell us about that balance of Putin's intent as well as the Russian 
capability uh, and why kind of what kind of threat that still presents itself today? Well, they, uh, the Black Sea Fleet was pretty much unchallenged in, in the Black Sea uh, because of their illegal annexation of Crimea. They were able to expand capacity there, make this basically uh, uh, one of these uh, uh, anti-access uh, area denial um, centers, if you will, uh, along their frontier. So the Black Sea Fleet, which has several uh, vessels capable of launching caliber missiles and other sorts of precision, long-range precision weapons. Uh, Crimea is a, basically an unsinkable aircraft carrier for them. And, uh, and it's what enabled them to totally uh, disrupt uh, Ukraine's shipping in and out of the Sea of Azov, for example. And because of Montreux, of course, the rest of us non-Black Sea nations are limited with what we can do inside the Black Sea. Um, however, because the Black Sea was never a priority for the department or for NATO, um, we never had enough requirements for the Navy anyway. So you can't blame Montreux for us not having more naval presence. It just wasn't high enough in the priority list to generate uh, the ships necessary to compete against the Black Sea Fleet. So this is part of the huge advantage that the Russians had there. The, the second thing, and I think this is part of why they um, felt pretty confident back in February last year that they could roll into Kiev the way they did in Budapest and Prague during the Cold War, was because we were a mess. The collective we were a mess. This is what failed deterrence looks like. Um, the U.S. had steadily been drawing down forces uh, in Europe. Uh, all of our allies, including UK, had been drawing down. The Dutch had given away or sold their last tank. Uh, the German Bundeswehr, uh, which used to be the envy of land forces in Europe, you know, was nothing like what it used to be. And and so we just we didn't look unified. There wasn't a sense of urgency. I, I can't tell you how many times I encountered really good, well-meaning, smart people would kind of roll their eyes when I would talk about, or my boss, General Breedlove, would talk about what needs to be done. And people's like, come on, they're not going to do this. You know, you you, you guys need to settle down. Uh, or, or I would hear things like Crimea has always been part of Russia. So there's so much false narratives out there that didn't go, that were not challenged enough because it was very uncomfortable because you would have to, if you acknowledge a threat, you got to do something about it. We're going to get to Crimea in a moment. You just outlined in part in, in your last set of comments, the kind of strategic importance it has both for Russia and for Ukraine. And, and we'll ask you to elaborate on, on perhaps the pivotal place it has in the, in, in the current war conflict. But before we go there, you were just ended your last comment about failed deterrence. Part of that was underestimating the threat. Part of that was not investing it for, for a different uh, set of reasons. But could you talk about what the United States didn't do uh, mm -hmm. over from 2014 to 2022? The debate here, and it was up and down, uh, was whether or not to provide Ukraine with lethal aid. And that was, you know, the kind of the offensive uh, types of weapons. And uh, the Obama administration sat on it, decided not to do it. Uh, the Trump administration, you know, set aside the president's kind of confusing uh, relationship with the, with the politics of Ukraine from a policy standpoint. The Trump administration can really point to 
achievements and shifts in policy to provide Ukraine with lethal assistance. Talk about the overall nature of U.S. support to Ukraine in intervening years between 2014 and 2022, uh, and it's perhaps, in your judgment, impact on Vladimir Putin's decision to invade in February of 2022. Okay, so uh, thank you. Um, uh, you know, I've, I've been talking about Ukraine and Crimea so much over the last several months that I got, I started getting myself <laughs> sidetracked, and now you, you brought me back to the center of the road. Those thanks. Um, Look, what happened between 2014 and 2022 uh, would be a great course for international relations students or strategic planners and thinkers, because the height of American discourse um, for much of that time was whether or not to provide Javelin. I mean, Javelin is a man-portable anti-tank system, but that was about the peak of our uh, strategic thinking, and and, um, and and you, I think, uh, correctly sort of tried to separate the fact, you know, the political stuff that was going on that really distracted everybody from why do we care? I mean, what what's going on in Ukraine? Why does Ukraine matter to us? And, and I think, as always, uh, it goes back to what is our political objective? What is our strategic objective for the region? And uh, there, there was no strategy for the Black Sea region. We would talk about Ukraine as if it was an island. We talk about Georgia as if it's an island. We talk about Turkey as if it's an island. But yet all of these nations are bound together because of their proximity. They're being on the Black Sea. So you have to have a, a regional approach because that affects everything that Russia does. And so um, we to, to help Ukraine... And then look, there's a lot of good people, uh, both parties uh, involved in trying to get this right. But what we always lacked was clear direction and guidance. And NATO had no plan for the region. And so in, in NATO, without a, a, a an approved plan, you can't do much else. You, you can't generate requirements. And so there was a lot of, um, um, thanks to people like uh, General Breedlove, you know, trying to get it, figure out what what can and should we do. Um, and there were some good things that happened. The Alliance, for example, did put forward Black Sea Air Policing, and they were flying out of Romania. So that was an attempt at least to get some uh, combat aircraft in the area. And uh, various uh, U.S. Navy Europe commanders, uh, Jamie Fogo was the one with whom I served the longest, uh, did everything he could to get U.S. Navy presence in the Black Sea. But he was competing with other requirements as well. Uh, we set up a, a training area, or no, there was a Ukrainian training area at a place called Yavariv near the city of Lviv in the far uh, western part of Ukraine uh, that had been a Soviet training area for a long time, then it was Ukrainian training area. So that's where we started working with the uh, Ukrainians in, um, I think it was 2015, uh, to help them as they were rotating battalions back and forth to what they called the ATO, the Anti-Terrorism Operations Zone, the Donbass. Donbass, yep. And uh, that was where we started, uh, you know, the delivery of helmets, body armor, communications gear, first aid uh, equipment. Um, and then the best thing that was ever provided, I think, before Javelin was finally delivered was the Q-36 radar. This radar, um, it's you know, it's pulled by a Humvee. It's on a trailer, but it is a counterfire radar. It detects incoming artillery, mortars, rockets, and that sort of thing. And 
now uh, Assistant Secretary Tori Newland, she was in office then, and you know she was a real advocate for getting these things in there. Of course, now she's the Under Secretary of State, one of the leading diplomats uh, in the Biden administration. Exactly, and and so having a, a person in the State Department like her that really would push things like Q thirty six. That was a big deal. I mean, she understood that this was a capability that not only would provide early warning, it would also give the Ukrainians the ability to conduct counterfire because that radar tells you where the enemy rocket or round originated. So uh, her, uh, uh, other, Jim Townsend, these are the kind of people that were working as hard as they could in the absence of a top-level priority and strategy. So let me draw a line under it and say that a lot of good things were happening, but it was not at the the speed or the scale that was needed to really make the big difference because we didn't have an overarching. Here's the end state. Right. Uh, all right. So we, that that's what happens this interwar period or the period between uh, the annexation of Crimea and February of 2022. Russia invades changed the landscape in Europe, you know, forever. Um, yes. Yes. And many people felt overwhelming view is that Putin's column, right? Given uh, assumptions about the strength of their conventional military would have rolled right into Kiev. Of course that didn't play out. And here we are, we have a conflict. Uh, it's playing out. Russians are dug in, in, in the Donbass. Um, and Zelensky is trying to, as a president of Ukraine, trying to gain the support of the West realizing key capabilities, the sorts of things that would have been unimagined uh, prior to the conflict. I want to get to that in a second, but take a step back. Um, this week, we've seen two hearings in the Congress about Ukraine exploring what the strategy should be, as well as how much uh, oversight and accountability there is uh, of the funds and material going in to Ukraine. Let, let's start with that because obviously you've uh, studied and have relationships and know the players in Ukraine. $113 billion total has been appropriated for Ukraine from the U.S. Congress. I'm talking about what the, what the rest of the West has provided of that. A little over $60 billion is for security assistance. That's money appropriated. Not all that has actually gone into stuff delivered into Ukraine. But let's just deal with those numbers. You're an advocate for this support. What's the confidence level you have in terms of Zelensky's Ukraine being able to be a responsible steward of what is, by all means, a huge amount of American taxpayer dollars going into Ukraine? Yeah. So uh, 100%, uh, they, they understand that they are under enormous scrutiny. Uh, the U.S. Embassy and the and the ODC, the Office of Defense Cooperation, are there to make sure that the taxpayers' money is not being squandered. Um, but I, so I I believe that because that's our system, and I've seen and heard. I've heard Ambassador even back when Masha Yovanovitch was our ambassador. The first time she and I talked, she she was emphasizing, and this has been like two thousand. 16, 17, uh, she was talking about the importance of making sure the Ukrainians are using the equipment properly and and, and accounting for it. So um, long before that became a big topic, she, our embassy was already emphasizing that. Now, I have a couple of personal anecdotes that convinced me 
that they know what has to be done. I remember asking a Ukrainian officer, I said, hey, where's where's all the javelins? This is before February. I said, where are the, how come we don't have javelins out there? And this was when they're still, the Minsk process, process was underway and there was a ceasefire. And so you weren't supposed to have tanks or big things within a certain distance of the line of contact out in Donbass. <laughs> he said, they're all locked up in a, in a, in a bunker. I said, what? Why? He said, because they're, Commanders are terrified of any of these things walking away, and they know they would get crushed by the United States for losing accountability. So what they do, they they lock them up until there's an absolute emergency rather than issuing them out. And the same thing happened even with the first aid kits. You know, after 20 years of Iraq and Afghanistan, we have developed the absolute best individual first aid kit for every soldier. It's incredible. Well, that's what we were providing to Ukrainians. And uh, they were guarding those in the same way because they they were so concerned that these things would be pilfered or, or that they might be accused of losing control of them. So my point is, they know at every level that they are being watched, and there's an expectation. And frankly, they're fighting for their life. So there's there's not a lot of opportunity for somebody to walk off with a, a Humvee somewhere uh, because they're fighting for their life. Well, funny, you ended on Humvees there. We're at this point where the tactics, the operational uh, objective is all focused on what can be done to move uh, to remove, I should say, uh, the Russians from their dug-in positions. And it's the focus is on land warfare, ground vehicles, armor, um, and there's a suite of, of capabilities and platforms that we're discussing. Uh, we had testimony this week uh, from the experts inside the Pentagon, outside the Pentagon, uh, talking about Bradley fighting vehicles, strikers, Paladin, howitzers. Now we have, of course, the Abrams tank piece, um, getting them trained. That is, Ukrainians trained. All of that effort seems to be okay. How do we break through uh, the Russian line in the Donbass? And you know, one thing that we're confident Putin is committed to doing is just committing more and more personnel to the effort. Uh, something you wrote recently highlighted that the. Uh, UK defense secretaries pointed out that 97% of the Russian army is tied to the war in Ukraine on the ground. there, or going on the ground, training to it all seems to be centered on that region, uh, Eastern region, Ukraine, where, where the fight is. Give me your sense of that approach uh, and whether that is actually the, the right play for Ukraine to win this conflict. And um, I'm trying to provoke you because I know you are encouraging um, the strategy to focus on Crimea more. So, so take us through where we are, where the focus is, and where uh, what your sense is and where you would have it go. So um, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, you know, it starts with uh, clarity at the top. What What is our objective? And the president, the administration has got to specify um, what with clarity, what is our objective? And saying that we're in it for we're with them for as long as it takes, that's not clarity. That that's not anything. That's a em totally empty statement. Um, so they've got us, and they can't say, well, we we want Russia to lose or we don't want Ukraine to lose. That's that's not clarity. So specifying Ukraine will win, Ukraine can win, and it can happen this year. And winning equals total restoration of all Ukrainian territory, and then you know, re returning deportees war crimes accountability, 
and then some kind of a, a guarantee for uh, Ukraine after this. So um, if that's when they state that, then all kinds of things start happening. And you and Clausewitz would say, okay, well that means Crimea because Crimea is the decisive terrain. You could kill every Russian soldier in Donbass, and it would not change the outcome. You liberate Crimea. That changes the outcome. Now, why? Explain that. Because the focus is, hey, we just want to reclaim the territory as part of your objective. The fight, the emphasis on, you know, in terms of Vladimir Putin is in the Donbass. And now you're going to an area where has seen some of the fight, but hasn't been the center of gravity for the effort. Right. So imagine... Um, Imagine that uh, Ukraine agreed to some sort of a peace deal um, and, and the price, which a lot of people are saying, come on, let the Russians have Crimea. Give give that up. Um, you know, it, it's got red ribbons all around it and all kinds of other scary uh, warnings. So uh, let them have that. And then we can stop the killing. All right. Imagine that uh, what happens in two or three years. Well, over the next two or three years, if Russia continues to sit in Crimea, uh, they will never take down that uh, big bridge. They will never allow any vessels to go up into the Azov Sea. So even if Mariupol and Berdansk, seaports number two and three for Ukraine, were liberated, no ships would be able to go in and out of Sea of Azov. Russia has zero credibility for living up to any agreement like that. And then Odessa. There's already 100 ships loaded with grain sitting in Odessa waiting to be inspected by some Russian inspector so that they can head through the straits. Right. Now, so, Odessa, of course, is under Ukrainian control, but to exit the the the, the sea is, of course, controlled by Russia. Exactly. So, so Russia's control of Crimea gives them the ability to dominate all of Ukraine's Black Sea coast. So you've got a country whose economy is based on export of grain, of rare earth materials, iron ore. So those ports, Odessa, Kherson, uh, Berdansk, and Mariupol, that's key to their economy. So their economy will never be rebuilt. And then after three years, Russia will have replenished all their losses. They'll, they'll wait for us to lose interest. And then here we go again, where they've got the Black Sea Fleet and on and on and on. So in other words, Ukraine will never be safe, it'll never be secure, and it'll never rebuild its economy as long as Russia occupies Crimea. That's why it's decisive. And I, I was at Munich Security Conference two weeks ago, spoke with a very, very, very senior executive of one of the two or three largest in, international investment firms on the planet. He said, if there's no ironclad guarantee for Ukrainian security, that there will be no investment. There's no Marshall Plan. So. They they can't be secure as long as Russia occupies Crimea. That's why you've got we have to help them get that, and it can be done, but not the way that the Pentagon describes it. It's you know what they talk about is basically like a squeegee, you know, that just pushes everything back. Clausewitz would say, you know, focus your main effort on the enemy's center of gravity. In liberation of Crimea is that center of gravity. You do that, all that stuff in Donbass. That, that happens later. There will be a lot less enthusiasm for so-called separatist fighting there once Crimea has been liberated, because that will unleash changes in inside Moscow as well. So uh, let's talk about the politics of what you're proposing, then we'll get to the military uh, element of, uh, as well. On the political level, you had Ukraine, perhaps a dysfunctional democracy, but it was in many respects. But you had Ukraine from 2014 to 2022, six-year period, operating as a country 
engaging in commerce, shipping out uh, its exports while Vladimir Putin's Russia illegally annexed and occupied Crimea. So what's your response to those who say, listen, it would be a good outcome if we can arrive at the status quo ante. Let's get everything the way it was prior to February 24th, 2022. I'd say that's it would be a catastrophic decision. First of all, so people would advocate for rewarding Russia with aggression, war crimes, all the different things that they've done, all in, in front of us to reward that with letting them have territory that they have illegally occupied and annexed. So I right there, that's that's a deal breaker um, for me. But um, it was not what the Ukrainian situation looked like in, let's say, January of 22 was not what it was like in uh, January of 15. In other words, starting around 18 or 19, you know, they were building this big giant bridge, the Kerch Bridge. That automatically um, was an illegal act. And it began to disrupt traffic coming in and out of Azov Sea. And then you'll remember, I think it was in 19, um, is when they seized the three Ukrainian vessels who were trying to go around Crimea into the Kerch Straits. And and so that's that right there should tell everybody, remind everybody who we're dealing with, that the Russians are not going to just stand by and let Ukraine begin to move ships in and out of Azov Sea. Let's talk about the Ukrainian mindset, starting with the President Zelensky and their military, they don't seem to be emphasizing Crimea, at least in their words, uh, as much as they're talking about uh, the challenges uh, to the east and the southeast and the Donbass and elsewhere. Do you think they share your assessment and is simply they're, they're trying to get what they can in terms of buy-in from the West? Uh, in other words, the West is clearly supportive of repelling Russia's invasion in 2022, but perhaps less enthusiastic about relitigating, certainly politically and militarily, uh, the annexation of Crimea. Uh, I will tell you that, number one, the Ukrainian general staff is extremely professional. They're very disciplined. They have mastered OPSEC operational security. Now, we know more about what the Russians are doing than what the Ukrainians are doing, as it should be. Uh, they would not advertise, hey, by the way, you know, we're just going to continue to uh, do economy of force over here around Bakhmut, and uh, we're saving all our stuff for uh, a plan to isolate Crimea. So that they would they would never do that, nor should they. Um, so, uh, based on my all my different conversations and just looking at the map and understanding op the operational level of war, what's required, the dumbest thing in the world to do would be attack into, you know, Donbass. I mean, there's there's no. There's no value in that. There's no strategic value for Ukraine to do that now. And I think they, you know, they all have calendars. Uh, they understand what the weather is going to look like in the next few months, but they also understand what uh, America's political calendar looks like next year. Uh, what uh, other nations in, in Europe, what their calendars look like, and and so um, they they understand that there's there's time and, and there's windows. And so, you know, again, Clausewitz would, would um, I think, uh, advise now's your chance to, to get, to liberate the decisive part of Ukraine and uh, for this war. 
and that and that will unleash things that will happen on the other side that I think would lead to the liberation of the rest of Ukrainian territory. So we're here with Lieutenant General Retired Ben Hodges, former uh, commander of U.S. Army Europe, coming to us uh, from Germany. And in that response, General, it seemed like you you were predicting that you think probably the Ukrainians will focus on Crimea and and understand the where the strategic opportunities reside. And as you outlined in our conversation, that is Crimea. That's where the decisive uh, victory uh, could take place and the Donbass uh, is less strategically important and consequential. Uh, one more question in terms of U.S. support and aid, and then we'll get a, a, a general discussion going in terms of what uh, the United States posture ought to be in Europe in light of what seems to be a defeated, depleted um, Russian conventional force. All of the efforts uh, seem to be, in terms of U.S. aid at the moment, on what Ukraine would need to cut through the essentially Russian column uh, that's dug in in Ukraine and the Donbass. Do you think the USAID should change in one way or another? Um, give me your take on, on the nature of the support. We talked about the 60 plus billion dollars appropriated, the 30 plus billion dollars of, of support delivered or being delivered, obligated already. Um, what would you emphasize uh, and what would you de-emphasize in that conversation? I have to tell you, the, the Congress is incredible what the Congress has, has done. Uh, bipartisan, everybody watches and pays attention to this. Everybody here in Europe, they see this is strong bipartisan support, so they don't get worried by the crazies on, on either side. Uh, and, and the Pentagon, I mean, it's just amazing, you know, how much has been done by our uh, by the Joint Staff and the headquarters over here in Europe to deliver capability. But they go back again. It starts with what is the objective? If the objective is to win, then how do you win? And you win by liberating Crimea, what's needed to liberate Crimea. And it's it's going to be long-range precision capabilities. I, I always try to avoid talking too much about specific systems or platforms because then you get involved in a, a contest about what kind of fuel does the m1 tank burn or you know this and that maintenance and training how long it takes and that's all those are all important things but it's wasted energy um i mean now because then you have very very senior people in the pentagon talking about well it, it'll take too long this is a it's a uh gas guzzler dot, 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 I started wondering, well, why the hell do we have Abrams tanks? Uh, they get talked down so bad by our own, and of course they're using it as excuses not to provide Abrams tank. So I would rather talk about capability. And if you talk about long range precision, then there's five or six systems that would deliver the ability for Ukraine to sever the two landlines of communication that connect Crimea to Russia. One, obviously, is the Kerch Bridge. The other is the so-called land bridge that runs through Mariupol and Melitopol down into Crimea. Um, that requires something more than the 90 kilometers that the GMLRS can reach. So ground-launched small diameter bombs, um, the uh, uh, ATACMs, obviously, uh, Grey Eagle drones, I think the British Storm Shadow, F-16s, I'm, I'm absolutely not against it, but I think, you know, we spend so much time arguing about whether and how long it would take when we should have started training months ago in anticipation of a possible 
decision. I, I can agree with you more. The, 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 the platforms and security support should be tied to the strategy and, and, you know, long range precision, you know, munitions that you're describing. I mean, there's generally been consensus. That's something Ukraine needs, uh, whether that's going East or South West, uh, you know, whether we're focusing on Donbass or Crimea, uh, it would be, you know, it's kind of essential uh, for both uh, the F-16s and uh, other types of, of, of platforms, in this case, fighter aircraft, you know, that's stuff that the U.S. is getting rid of. <laughs> it's like not going to be used anyway. So why are we not providing it? And the notion that uh, maybe you want to comment on this, that somehow a particular military platform is escalatory in nature. That is, it's going to provoke the Russians to do something they otherwise wouldn't do. That's not persuasive to me as long as the platform is used for, you know, an objective that's consistent with the strategy. In this case, repelling, you know, Russia's advance, their invasion, as opposed to using an F-16 to penetrate, which they wouldn't otherwise be able to do, uh, Russian sovereign territory. I mean, do you think uh, a particular long-range precision munition somehow is uh, it would be escalatory in, in, in the conflict? Why are we not provoked? that they are using multi-million dollar precision weapons to, to knock down apartment buildings. Why does that not provoke us uh, to want to go in there and deny them sanctuary, which we have done in Crimea, by limiting the, the weapons that we provide them, uh, where the longest thing that they have is 90 kilometers, we have, in effect, created sanctuary for the Russians in Crimea, which everybody from the president on down says is sovereign Ukrainian territory. So now, look, President Zelensky and all kinds of other senior Ukrainian leaders have said, fine, we won't use ATACMs or F-16s against some airfield in Russia, even though I have a hard time even agreeing with that, because every nation should be able to defend themselves. But if that's the price to get these long-range capabilities, fine. It'll be so easy to stop them if they, if they were ever to violate what they said they won't do. It gets turned off immediately. So I, I think this is another uh, excuse that's out there. Uh, and we have been self-deterring for over a year now. Do you think the aid has been contingent on 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 the getting a guarantee from Ukrainian leadership that they will not use these uh, military system, these uh, uh, weapon systems, uh, you know, to recover you Crimea? In other words, you think there are strings attached coming from the U.S.? Yeah, I'm sure there are. But I mean, Zelensky said that months ago that they would not, <laughs> that they wouldn't use them inside Russia properly. Talking about you know? Crimea. Yeah, well, that's that's Ukraine. Right. Now I'm saying it was the U.S. holding back and saying you can't use certain of the uh, the platforms we're given for for uh, to for Crimea. I mean that that's 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 kind of the. You've seen some reporting around that. I was wanting to get your view on it. I no, I don't. I don't think that we have said you cannot use your HIMARS against um, Russian target uh, in Ukraine, in Crimea. Right. I, I don't think we've said that. I mean, that would be um, just absolutely mindless um, for us to to have done that. Let's move on to kind of the U.S. posture in Europe. Uh, so much of what you did in leading our U.S. Army Europe is thinking about what the United States needs to commit in terms of uh, military presence capability to deter Russian adventurism, right? Being the, the, the primary threat to security and stability in, in Europe. As we mentioned before, 97%, according to 
UK Defense Secretary Ben Wallace of the Russian Army is tied to Ukraine at the moment. Some in the U.S. with an eye towards China and China's aggression and threat against Taiwan and our interests in the Indo-Pacific region are saying, hey, because Russia has failed so terribly and they've lost so much in people, but also material and, and, and capability, we can reduce our presence in Europe. General, what, what's your take in terms of the opportunity now to uh, reallocate our presence and, and, and resources uh, to the Indo-Pacific? Well, first of all, that's the same sort of naive thinking that led us to the weakness that we ended up with in 2014. It was like the Cold War's over, the Soviet Union fell apart, Russia's going to be our partner, there'll never be a threat again. And, and, and here we are. And it's, And certainly, if they are allowed to be rewarded for what they've done now, and this war ends in some sort of negotiated settlement with Russia still in control of uh, Crimea and part of the Donbass, uh, and they haven't been defeated, I mean like crushed defeated, then they'll just wait for us to lose interest. They'll take two or three years to rebuild you know, what they lost or used up, and we'll be dealing with this again. And I hope you'll invite me back on your podcast in three years to uh, <laughs> you can you can tell me how wrong I was, or we can talk about what happened. Now, um, let's keep in mind what we're talking about. Right now, there's about 100,000 American troops in Europe, okay, about 100,000. That's exactly how many people fit inside Michigan Stadium in Ann Arbor, okay, or Wembley Stadium in London, about 100,000. Over half of those are rotational. So it's not like, you know, sometimes you'll see this, these nonsensical things, an article or somebody like the former, uh, let's say, former Secretary of State will talk about why do we have these sprawling bases in Europe? <laughs> there is no such a thing as a sprawling base in Europe. It's a very, very small footprint um, that we have here that allows us to contribute to NATO, but also from which we're able to do things in Africa, the Middle East, as well as all over Europe. We have, I think we have... Uh, four, hopefully soon to be six, U.S. Navy warships that are responsible for all of U.S. Navy, Europe, and Africa. Six. I mean, that's that's not quite going to uh, provide what we really need, but that's all there is. So um, I think the, the footprint that's here now is about at the minimum. And of course, the air and missile defense is wholly inadequate. One battalion, one battalion of Patriot, that's all the U.S. has in, in Europe. Give us a sense of one battalion of Patriot in, in Europe in terms of what what how much that covers in terms of geography and, and what, what it protects. Ramstein Air Base. I mean, our most important base, arguably, in Europe is, is what it protects. That's it. There, there's nothing left. Now, I, the, the channeling those most focus on, on, on China and China, of course, or national security strategy, and I think most strategy degree uh, is the adversary we uh, need to focus on and, and is the most uh, serious challenge to our interests, would say, yes, you have 100,000 in Europe, but that's, you know, that's more um, or that's almost on par with what we have in the Indo-Pacific. You, know, you have, you have your, your forces in uh, Korea, you have your forces in Japan, and that's a place where we need more. Now, you know, it's, primarily a naval and air fight, uh, if we ever get in one in the Indo-Pacific, less 
uh, a ground war. But the idea is, hey, this is an army that only has, you know, 450,000 and it's going down to 435,000 active duty forces. And now you're talking about 100,000. Uh, I don't know if it's in entirely active duty, so it may not be apples to apples, but you get the 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 the, the ratio here. Uh, how do you deal with that struggle in terms of you want to be a, uh, you have a mission, a strategy that's global in nature, and you got to manage attention between uh, regional priorities? Yeah, well, I think it comes down to, do you want to have as much security as you can afford or as much as you need? Uh, and then so if your decision, well, this is all we can afford, <laughs> Too bad luck for us if that's only half of what's needed. So um, I, I think the uh, the capabilities that are required in the Pacific for sure are predominantly going to be air, maritime, uh, special forces, our intelligence, uh, all of these kind of things. Um, what the Army provides in Japan and Korea is, is very important. But actually, when you start talking about all the U.S. Army personnel that smell Pacific air in the morning, we're talking about Hawaii. You're talking about Fort Lewis. You're talking about Alaska. There's a lot of capability that is there specifically to deal with um, challenges in the Indo-Pacific region. It's not enough. Our great Navy, not enough for sure. Um, and 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 the administration is correct to continue pressing our allies to do more uh, over here. So that this is a part of it. I'm just saying that what we have invested in Europe right now is pretty small compared to the threat and what the price of, of failed deterrence will be. We're going to go to our lightning round in just a minute, but before we uh, move on to that closing piece of our conversation, of course, with Lieutenant General retired Ben Hodges, want to get your take on where the Russian military is today. We referenced before that you would think that Vladimir Putin uh, could reconstitute his military in a few years Give us a sense of how depleted it is um, and your uh, kind of sense of what Putin will do to restore uh, whatever losses he's taken in Ukraine. Fortunately, um, a lot of the problems that the Russian military has are so deep-rooted and institutional that uh, it will take um, something dramatic to cause them to to change their outlook, at least in the in the near term. Uh, I've, you, everybody listening probably has seen the videos of Russian tanks uh, stumbling into minefields and how they react to that, uh, of course, is the opposite of what you should be doing. So their ability to train and improve themselves while they are in the war seems to be pretty limited. And they have uh, suffered a lot of casualties in their best units and their VDV airborne units, uh, these kind of units. Um, uh, they've been decimated. So a lot of those holes are being filled with conscripts. The um, logistic system from the Russian side is uh, was never designed to sustain long-term land operations outside of Russia, but yet that's what they're having to do, and it's very difficult. Uh, their biggest shortfalls are something I alluded to earlier is the they don't have this joint mindset where you integrate air, land, and sea. I, they have not done that yet. They haven't done a single amphibious operation, their Navy, I, which really surprised me. Um, they never got air superiority. They have not yet, um, I don't think in a year, they haven't destroyed a single train or convoy coming from Poland with equipment or ammunition. They, they don't have the ability to do these things. So uh, now's the chance to help Ukraine 
crush them uh, before they get a two or three year opportunity to to reload and, and uh, rebuild. Last question, uh, and then we'll go to lightning round. There'll be increasing pressure on getting to negotiated settlement. You know, how long can the war go on? How much support can the United States and the West give Ukraine? There needs to be uh, something that will bring this thing to an end. And and there are voices on left and right in the United States and uh, elsewhere around the world saying, let's bring this thing to close to negotiated settlement. Under what terms would you have that negotiation? Well, what, what's the outcome that you want? I mean, um, if there's if there's no security guarantee, if there's no possibility for Ukraine to be absolutely secure, then there will be no investment. So you'll have 4 million plus Ukrainian refugees that live here in Germany and in Poland and the Netherlands and everywhere else that will never, won't have anything to go back to. And there'll be millions of Africans and uh, people in the Middle East that won't be getting the grain that they normally get from Ukraine. So is it... Is it really just to stop the fighting? I mean, that how naive and what terrible strategic thinking is that? So I, I think you have to ask the question, uh, what is what is the outcome? And I think that anything that leaves, that rewards Russian aggression, uh, that doesn't hold uh, them accountable for the thousands of war crimes they have committed in front of our eyes every day um, and leaves Ukraine vulnerable, we're just all we're doing is kicking the can down the road for a couple more years, and it'll be even more expensive next time because the Russians won't make all the same mistakes the next time. No doubt, the, the Ukrainians and President Zelensky should have something to say about if and when uh, they engage in, in 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 these sorts of negotiations. I don't think you could fill up a bus with a number of Ukrainian citizens who are willing to do to settle for anything to end it. All right, let's go to our lightning round. This is where we asked our guests to share their favorite book on President Reagan, their favorite. Reagan speech and favorite Reagan quote, give us all three, two, or just one. What do you got for us? Trust, but verify. <laughs> um, I, this is so uh, relevant today. Um, you know, from when president Reagan said it to uh, Mr. Gorbachev there with, at the signing of the uh, INF, uh, because there is so much pressure, exactly as your last set of questions talked about, there's so much pressure to get to a negotiated settlement. People are, you know, it's expensive, it's costing lives, people wanted to end. Um, but Russia has, a, I think, a perfect record of never living up to any agreement uh, unless there was a very strong compliance protocol and, and transparency. So I have zero confidence uh, that they would live up to anything that, to which they agreed unless we had a way to verify it. And I think uh, President Reagan was exactly right. Lieutenant General Retired Ben Hodges coming to us from Germany, expert on the war in Ukraine, uh, led our army in Europe. Thank you so much for your time. We look forward to having you back to continue this discussion, hopefully uh, with Ukrainian victory as a subject of discussion. Thank you very much. I, I enjoyed the conversation, um, your tough uh, questioning style. Uh, and I know also you have a, a particular audience that cares about these things. And um, thank you for giving me the opportunity to, to reach out to them. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.